it's okay with you guys. Um, I want to take us on a journey into the life of a man that many of us know very little about. And we've been studying some of the final words of Jesus for about the past three months, and so I thought it'd be cool to examine a man that was with him during this time, someone that walked with him and talked with him every day and shared meals with him every day. And so today we're going to take a journey into the life of Thomas, one of the 12 disciples. So we're just going to go ahead and dive right into it and get this party started. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. It should be page 715 if you're using a pew Bible. We'll be starting in verse 12 of Luke 6. It says this, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So most of us know this, but Jesus chose twelve men to follow him and join him on his mission to change the world. And Thomas made the cut. And I want to emphasize that these were the most unlikeliest of men to ever been chosen for a task such as changing the world. Some of them were fishermen, some of them were just tax collectors. We don't even know what a couple of them did for a living. They were uneducated, average Joe, ordinary men. And if you and I were going to assemble a dream team to change the world or market our product or take it global, none of these guys would have made the cut. We wouldn't have even read their resume or even considered their application that they sent to us. But yet Jesus chose them, and they had no idea what they were signing up for. And most scholars believe Jesus actually spent half of his three-year ministry just with these 12 guys. So 18 months every day with these guys. Every day with these 12 guys. They shared meals with him, walked with him, talked with him, rejoiced with him, and even grieved with him. They witnessed miracles and performed miracles themselves in his name. And they also faced severe persecution. Although they didn't know it at the time, only one of them would die from a natural death while all the other disciples were murdered because of their faith. And he chose these 12 men to spread the Christian message throughout Israel and to the ends of the earth, as most of us know. And if these 12 failed the task, Christianity would not have spread because he didn't have, Jesus didn't have another 12 as a backup unit. He didn't have a plan B and there wasn't, um, sorry, if the spread of Christianity, um, the spread of Christianity and the founding of the Christian church rested primarily on these 12 men, and Thomas had the opportunity to be in this innermost circle of Jesus. So I want to hear from you guys. When you hear of Thomas the disciple, what comes to mind? What do you know about him? What's that? Doubt. Okay, yes, doubt. What else? it 
He's a doubter, yes? What's that? He's from Missouri. Oh, gosh. He's from Missouri. Okay. What else? Anything. That's, is that all we remember, know about him, is that he was a doubter? That's part of the reason why I wanted to preach this sermon, because I think we've got it wrong. Anything else? Okay. We actually, we know very little about Thomas's life. And when you sit down and try to prepare a sermon on Thomas, it's really hard to find any information on Bible software or anything I got. I was just like, there was nothing. Thankfully, I came across a book called um, 12 Ordinary Men by John MacArthur, and he had a lot of helpful information, so I'm going to be using that a, um, a fair amount. Something we do know about Thomas is that his name came from a word meaning twin, and we don't know who his twin was, or even if he had a literal twin, but some people, a lot of scholars, have actually said that he looked a lot like Jesus, so he could have been a twin of Jesus, a lot of physical similarities, but I like to think that he might actually be the twin of each of us, and I'm going to come back to that later. And it's probably safe to say that Thomas was not an optimistic person. He was much more of a pessimistic person, one of those people that always just expects the worst possible outcome to take place in their life. We refer to them, we might call them a Debbie Downer, or a Negative Nancy, or a Gloomy Gary, or a Cynical Cindy. The list goes on, take your pick. And I came across a funny video of what might give us a modern-day example of what Thomas might have been like in a social setting. So let's watch this clip of Debbie Downer from Saturday Night Live on her trip to Disney World. Let's see how she acts in a social setting. I want to go to every 
happy country in Epcot and greet them in their own native language. Hola, konnichiwa, hi. <laughs> Did you guys hear about that train explosion in North Korea? <laughs> Media is so sensitive there, so secretive. <laughs> All right, that's good. Okay. Have you ever known someone like that? It's like every time they open their mouth, you just hear that trumpet. Wah, wah. Yeah, everybody? Are you sitting next to someone like that? Don't raise your hand. You guys are going to get in trouble later on. Obviously not this ridiculous, but Thomas was the type of guy that was prone to just expecting the worst to happen in his life. But there's more to Thomas than what many of us perceive. Let's go ahead and open up to our first actual encounter of Thomas in Scripture. Um, Go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. I believe it should be page 746 if you're using a pew Bible. We'll be starting in verse 1 of chapter 11. says this, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you were going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles. For he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And then Thomas, called to Demas, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. And Thomas is only mentioned one time in this passage, but it gives us great insight into his character and his loyalty to Christ. And what's going on here in this passage is that um, Jesus and his disciples were spending a lot of time outside of Jerusalem. Some of the Jewish authorities tried to kill Jesus by stoning him, so they kind of retreated to the wilderness area and spent a lot of time there doing ministry, and it was in the wilderness they actually probably experienced more success than they had ever had. Lots of people were starting to believe in Christ and follow him, and people getting baptized, and all of this was happening without any type of persecution. So things were going really good. And while they're out in the wilderness, Jesus receives word that one of his closest friends was very sick, even to the point of death, and his sisters wanted to know They wanted Jesus to know about this because they knew that he could do something about it, that he could heal him if he wanted to. But this news 
obviously put Jesus in a difficult situation because if he were to travel back to Bethany, which is very close to Jerusalem, he would put his own life on the line. And that's not exactly a situation that most people, most of us would want to walk into. So he says to his disciples, let's go back now. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to go wake him up. And I love how scripture is just so blunt sometimes, and just it shows how clueless some people are. His disciples thought he was just referring to Lazarus was just taking a nap. And he basically just says, hey, idiots, he's dead. Let's go. I'm going to go do something about it. We've got to leave. And they knew immediately what going back meant. It meant there's a very real possibility that Jesus could be stoned to death and anyone associated with him or traveling with him could be at that kind of same risk as well. And it's in this moment when push comes to shove between life and death and when their fear, when they know their life is on the line that we're first introduced to the disciple Thomas. Go ahead and look at verse 16 again. It says, Then Thomas called to Demas, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Let us also go that we may die with him. Doesn't that sound like a response a pessimistic person would make? Guys, Jesus is going to die, so we might as well die with him. There's no hope. There's no hope. We're all screwed. So we might as well just die with him too. But John MacArthur calls this heroic pessimism. Because Thomas only saw tragedy ahead. And he thought that this was most likely the end of Jesus' life. But he was so loyal that he was willing to walk into the heat of physical persecution and to risk his own life to support his Lord. Even in the midst of his pessimism, this is huge, even in the midst of his pessimism, he was still courageous enough to be loyal to Christ and faithful to him. And MacArthur had this to say about Thomas. Read a quote. He said, Thomas was devoted to Christ. It's clear from this account that Thomas did not want to live without Jesus. If Jesus was going to die, Thomas was prepared to die with him. In essence, he says, guys, suck it up. Let's go and die. Better to die and be with Christ than to be left behind. And it appears that they collectively followed his lead because they did go with him to Bethany. Thomas obviously had a deep devotion to Christ that could not be dampened even by his own pessimism. He had no illusion that following Jesus would be easy. All he could see were the jaws of death opening to swallow him. But he followed Jesus with an undaunted courage. And Jesus tells us in John 15 that a man can show no greater love to his friend than by being willing to die for him, by being willing to lay down his life for him. And here's Thomas living this out. That's not too bad for a guy that's mostly gotten a bad rep from Christians for the past 2,000 years. And as I was writing this message, I saw a lot of similarities between my life and Thomas's life. Because I can also not be the most optimistic person if you were to put me in a group. Typically when life gets really hard, I'm more prone to just becoming filled with despair rather than being optimistic and choosing hope and just being a you know, happy-go-lucky person. My mind can come up with a thousand different things to obsess about and worry about and just play out situations that could go wrong that aren't even realistic. Some of you are nodding, yes. I'm not the only one. 
And I remember a time in my life, um, another rock band story. I was playing with a band, and we were together about four years. And things were kind of coming to a head. Our lives were going separate ways, and it was time to have the talk. And any of you that have played in bands, you know what that talk's like. It was, you know, the breakup conversation. And I remember that in that time of my life, I'd, be, I'd kind of become well-known for making the following statement, the lens through which I saw life, and it was this. You've got to hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. So, yeah, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. There's obviously some truth to that statement, but it probably shouldn't be the anthem of your life. It was literally like the anthem of my life. And I remember one day, one of my bandmates could not take anymore. And he said, dude, you've got to stop saying that. I am sick of hearing that. He's like, that is such a negative way to live. You're always thinking about every possible thing that could go wrong. Basically, he said, you're killing me, Smalls. He's like, cheer up. You can't keep living that way. Like, I can't take it anymore. So I can see some of Thomas's pessimism in my own life. But I'd like to hope that I have some of his loyalty as well. But we're not going to get into that today. So let's take a look at the, at the passage that most of us associate Thomas with. The one that he's become famous for, unfortunately. Uh, turn over a few pages to John chapter 20. And before we read, just a little, just a little uh, context. In this passage, Jesus had recently died. So in Thomas's mind, this was the worst possible thing that could have happened to him. Jesus died, and Thomas was left behind without his Lord. So you can imagine the despair that he was in. We could probably, probably be similar to losing a son or a daughter or losing your spouse. His grief seemed unbearable. And it was in this moment that Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to the disciples, but Thomas was the only one not present with them. Let's go ahead and pick up there. It's, um, we'll start in verse uh, 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
So Thomas was the only disciple not present with the others when Jesus first appeared. And it's possible Thomas was probably swimming in his own misery. He didn't have the strength to be around anybody, not even his closest friends. And he just wanted to be alone because he was devastated. His Lord had just died, and it ripped his heart out. And in verse 25, we read that the other disciples went to Thomas, and they told him with great excitement, he's alive. Like, we saw him. He is alive. But if you've ever tried cheering up a pessimistic person in the worst state of their despair of their life, you've probably realized it's not going to happen easily, and they're not going to cheer up quickly. <clears throat> so it's from this response that, unfortunately, Christians throughout history have given him the name Doubting, uh, Doubting Thomas. But this is huge. A lot of us miss this. We've got to remember that the other disciples doubted Jesus' resurrection until they saw him too. In Mark 16, you don't have to turn there, we read that Mary Magdalene saw Jesus, and she ran to the disciples and told them, I saw him, he's alive. But they didn't believe her. They didn't believe her until they saw him, and Thomas didn't believe until he saw Jesus either. And uh, MacArthur wrote, What set Thomas apart from the other disciples was not that his doubt was greater but that his sorrow was greater. No one could feel the way Thomas felt unless he loved Jesus the way Thomas loved him. The proof of his love was the profoundness of his despair. The proof of his love was the profoundness of his despair. And after Thomas saw him, he believed, and his response was this, my Lord and my God. And it was from that moment his life would never be the same. He, it clicked. This man that he had spent three years with was God. God himself. And his life would never be the same from that moment. So what happened to this pessimistic doubter? Who did he become? What did he do after Jesus left him and the other disciples? We know that he actually ended up taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and living out the Great Commission. We know that he traveled to Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and he preached to the Persians and shared the Christian message. He even took the Christian message as far as India. And remember, this is a time where there were no automobiles. That is a long journey, Israel to India. And in southern India, even today, there are Christian churches that trace their roots back to the ministry of the disciple Thomas. And it was in India that he gave the fullest expression of his love to his Lord. He was killed for his faith. Spears were run through his body, and he was thrown into a fire left to die. It's kind of a morbid note to end on. <laughs> and as we come to an end today, we can't help but notice the dichotomy of faith and doubt in Thomas's life. He had seasons where he was very pessimistic and was a doubter and where it just seemed like nothing was ever going to work out for the good. And then he had times where he had great faith and he was so loyal to Christ, even willing to give up his own life to follow him. And as I said earlier, Thomas's name means twin. And I think in many ways, all of us are kind of like a twin um, of Thomas. We all have times where our faith is strong 
where we feel like we could take on the world for Jesus and where we trust him. And we have times where we're very pessimistic and um, a critical viewpoint can become the lens through which we see the world. And for most of us, that can change on a day-to-day basis. Our faith is strong, then it's weak, even an hour-to-hour basis because we can be so fickle. Usually all it takes is that one phone call with bad news or that text message or that email that rubs us wrong to just send us down a road of despair. And many of us, maybe some of us doubt that God is really on our side because maybe we've been the victim of abuse or we've suffered from some type of addiction or maybe we've lost a loved one and it doesn't make sense. Maybe we've been stabbed in the back and betrayed by Christians and it doesn't make sense to us. This is supposed to be a God of love, but yet his people so often do such a poor job of representing him and we're trying to wrestle through that. Or maybe we doubt that God can even use us because of the horrible sinner we used to be in our past life and all the mistakes and failures that we've made. And honestly, I don't think most Christians or churches have done a good job of creating an environment for people to wrestle with their doubts and to let them know that it's okay to have doubts and to ask difficult questions about God and life and what it means to follow him. We've grown so accustomed, it's so easy just to say, just have more faith. Just pray about it. People don't want that answer. Just pray about it. It'll work out. It's not that easy. And I want to show a quote from, in my opinion, probably the most prominent Christian leader in our world today, uh, Tim Keller. And this is what he had to share about doubt. He said, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but also their friends and their neighbors. God doesn't think less of us in our doubt. And that's so huge. Some of us really need to hear that. He doesn't think less of us in our doubt. And even though we don't expect God to magically appear in physical form in our living room or in our bedroom, we all desire and need to see some type of evidence of his power and love at work through lives being changed and transformed around us. We all need to see marriages and relationships that just seem unredeemable to be redeemed, to give us that hope and perseverance. In times of doubt will come in our life, and that's okay. A lot of us have been taught that that's bad to have any doubt. It's okay to have doubt because our doubt is not the final factor in our ability to be used by God. Our doubt is not the final factor and our ability to be used by God. And no matter where you find yourself today, whether you're in a state of doubt or pessimism, or you're not even sure what this whole Christianity thing is, or maybe your faith is really strong right now, the question we got to wrestle with is, where's our loyalty to Christ? Just like Thomas. Where's your loyalty to Christ? Are you loyal to him when things are going great and life's peachy? 
Are you loyal to him when everything's falling apart and the whole world is collapsing around you? And just like Thomas, even in our worst state of despair and suffering, God is still good and he still has a plan for us. And he wants to use us to impact the lives of others. And if he can use an uneducated, pessimistic Christ follower from Israel, then he can certainly use each one of us in this room today. Let's pray together.